Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse podcast live stream number, is it 62? It is 62. Wow, I'm amazed I got that right in light of where we are. Things are moving at quite a pace in the world. And I must say, in some ways, this could be exactly the thing that the Dark Horse podcast leans well into. You and I are two adults with a certain amount of expertise in the world and a certain amount of experience, and we can talk things through, and people seem to find that rewarding. On the other hand, it's very hard to know how to even process what's going on. So I must admit, I personally am feeling a bit discombobulated and uh, off kilter, even though at some level, uh, everything that is taking place, not in its detail, but in its general uh in its general valence, it has been predicted by us and others um, in numerous places. So I don't know exactly know why I'm so surprised. I think it has to do once again with the incredible speed, right? That is to say, even when you predict that some process is going to happen, you can be caught completely off guard by how quickly it, it unfolds. And there's something, something important in that. Indeed. Um... I'd like to start though with some gratitude. Great. And actually, um, and and just point out where we're going today. Uh, although much much of what we're going to be talking about today is exactly responsive to uh, some of the main events that have happened this week, which puts, you know, it, it. I think it's much more within your both wheelhouse and interest space. And uh, I was hoping to talk about Sea Stars this week. Um, I don't think there will be time, but perhaps in give, a later week. Give me a week. second. Wait. I got the connection. Okay. Then you will You will give me, I mean, you know my enthusiasm, uh, my new, renewed enthusiasm for Sea Stars as of this week. So. And the shocking revelation which you brought to me. I This one, uh, I didn't see coming. Right. So so maybe, maybe we'll get there, maybe we won't. But um, I, will, I want us to start with some words of gratitude and end actually by talking, uh, by providing some words uh, from the great uh, Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh on fear and uh, what its impacts in the world are um, from his book of the same name, Fear, uh, from 2012, in which he is, as usual, prescient. In the middle, we're going to talk a whole lot about um, the lab leak hypothesis and its entry into the mainstream conversation and, of course, the events at the Capitol on January 6th and uh, their resulting events with regard to censorship in uh, social media and uh, and really tech space in general, Apple, Google, the whole bit. Um, but but first, uh, we it is now January 9th. It is now actually um, all parts of Christmas are now over. Uh, we have been informed. We've been educated as to uh, the the epiphany ending. Oh boy, I've already forgotten. Is it actually the sixth? It might be. What um, epiphany? Uh, the the um, Christmas, the 12 days of Christmas. Oh, I didn't um, know this term. Uh, so uh, it, it is over, but we, because of delays in shipping due to COVID and overburdened shipping uh, and such, uh, we ended up receiving a number of things from from Dark Horse fans um, to our post office box and uh, that, that we just received this week. And, I, and we wanted to say in response to your gratitude, thank you as well. So uh, we received many, many cards, including um, people's Christmas cards that they were sending to their friends and family. And they thought, you know, why not send them to us? And they're really wonderfully appreciated, including 
um, not least the one that on the back is printed, Epstein didn't kill himself. We received that one today, actually. I would that say was festively printed. Festively, festively printed. Festively printed. Yeah. I, I, I laughed out loud. That was good. I liked, I appreciate that. Um, we got cookies. Uh, and even though due to delays, they were, they arrived rather a lot later than they were shipped. They were delicious. Um, we received some wine. We received And we have no idea who the wine is from. Exactly. I would love to know. Yeah. Um, so if if that is, in fact, uh, one of y'all, we'd, we'd love to know who that is because there's no indication. Right. And I would say um, the wine was excellent. Not a great match with the cookies. You need a little, Rarely. A little break yes. there. But um, yeah, although as we were drinking that we, we have only drank one bottle of the wine. It was a French wine. And uh, upon putting it down for a while, I, I picked back up my glass and I said, I detect a little sugar cookie in in the flavor profile of the wine. So that's you know, true. This is, you, you should not be drinking the cookies with the wine, but sometimes you can find essence of cookie in the wine. Yeah, exactly. Even if no one has surreptitiously <laughs> dipped their cookie in your wine when they weren't <laughs> looking. So, yeah, that seems... Um, Perhaps trivial cookies, wine, etc. But but no, uh, especially now when we see ourselves, our entire society, the world, and even within families fracturing and splintering and um, you know decohering in so many ways, it is ever more important to recognize uh, the acts, both large and small, of others uh, that reveal our shared humanity and our appreciation for one another. So we really, we really appreciate uh, that what we're doing here is being responded to with enthusiasm and gratitude. And in turn, we are grateful for you. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm going to uh, just uh, wing a little addendum to that. Terrific. Um, you know, we are working once again without Annette because mm -hmm. once again, she didn't show up for work. Never. Never. She is um, not a hard worker, actually, yep. Annette. Mm -hmm. But in any case, um, I would say there is something delightful about people um, revealing their gratitude. And I don't want to say this is just about gifts or anything, but it is so nice when people um, alert us that what we're doing is meaningful to them, right? Yeah. I mean, even just to know that a small number of people find it uh, a significant fact in their week, that uh, it makes them feel better about the world, more grounded, all of these things is incredibly rewarding. And it is also uh, fascinating and marvelous to see when people, um, you know, put their creative uh, energies in motion and generate art pieces oh which go onto our walls and uh, and other things. So uh, sorry, I should have mentioned this that, that those those things didn't happen to come in the last week or two, but we have received some amazing art from people and maybe at some point we should perhaps, you know, photograph and share some of it, but really truly wonderful um, wood carvings and some some uh, sculptural pieces, uh, really remarkable. Beautiful stuff. And uh, I would say there's something in it, you know, I think this should be obvious and probably the conscious part of it is, but there's something um, that's easily lost where human beings, because of the way the modern world works, don't get an opportunity to be important to each other very easily, mm. right? It's just not an opportunity that exists in people's lives. So people tend and, to become... Frankly, COVID's made that even harder. It has made it even harder, although I've seen lots of people, you know, pioneer new ways of reaching out too. So, you know, it cuts both ways. But uh, I think the thing is, if you know, were we hunter-gatherers or were we, you know, pastoralists, uh, you know, 
carving a living out of the the earth or whatever the various uh, recent or more uh, deeply ancestral ways of being that one could have found themselves in, the, you know, I think the common experience would have been to be important to a small number of people in your town or in your tribe. Uh, Absolutely. And that there's something just so alienating about a style of life that in fact just doesn't offer that possibility um, because, you know, most of your time you're preoccupied with earning a living by, you know, doing things that aren't important to you because somebody else will pay you to do them. And it may um, in fact, you know, often are not important to the world or even bad for the world, but serve, you know, some small number of people's bottom line, you know, a profit motive of a few people as opposed to doing, serving any greater good. Yes. I'm, I'm reminded actually, uh, I find David Graeber a mixed figure. He died this year. Um, you oh, know, I didn't know that. Yeah, he died. So he did. say a few words about who he is. Uh, so he actually was very particular about how he was described. Oh, yeah. um, I think what he said was something like, um, anarchism is not something you are, it's something you do. And so he didn't mm -hmm. like being called an anarchist, though he clearly had those leanings. And I must say, I don't share those leanings with him, though, you know, as anarchists go, he was a pretty sophisticated thinker. Um, he was, I would say, uh, you know, and geez, this is, uh, you know, people do not like it when you're honest about the dead, but um, he was atrocious when it came to evolutionary analysis. He just mm -hmm. got it really, really wrong. On the other hand, um, his article, Bullshit Jobs, uh, was really quite spectacular, and it made the point that what most people uh, do cannot really be explained in even classical economic terms, right? That basically right. we have a society that preoccupies people on uh, nonsense that's so ephemeral, it's hard to imagine why it's even being done. So for, if if I were listening to this and I'd never heard of him before, some of the words I'd like to hear to inform me of who he is before you say more about him is um, that he was, I believe, a professor of anthropology and that uh, the work by which I came to know about him was this massive book called Debt. Um, and in fact, I looked it up. It's Debt. The, subject, the subtitle is The First 5,000 Years yep. uh, from 10 years ago. Yep. Um, and so, so he's doing sort of an economic anthropology um, of of the history of what it is to exchange for humans. So he was he was a, a professor, and um, he was also a founder of the Occupy movement. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, all of these things yeah. paint a kind of a, a picture. But um, something about the bullshit jobs article, which was quite a short to the point piece, mm -hmm. um, I'm sure it's easily findable. Uh, you know, speaks to the fact that there's just something about the way this amazing machine-like thing that we call civilization sidelines our humanity and sets us about other things. And, you know, uh, at some level, you may not have a lot of choice about whether or not you're employed as a cog, but it certainly makes sense to notice that that's happening to you and maybe to uh, take up arms against it. Yeah. And the... Um the legitimate feelings of frustration and futility, which can manifest in illegitimate ways. We've been seeing from the so-called left all summer and fall, and on Wednesday in the Capitol, we saw from, you know, maybe it's the actual right, maybe the so-called right, uh, uh, and it's, it's emerging from a similar human place. And by saying that, I'm not in any way justifying the behavior of the writers on either side. Um, but the, there's legitimate sense of futility and lack of connection um, because, because we are living such disconnected, anonymous lives.
which raises a couple of things that I should probably mention somewhere in here. Uh, I was on uh, TriggerPod, Trigonometry, um, this week, uh, talking about the events at the Capitol. The... Yeah, they, they live-streamed with you on Thursday, the day after the events, right? Yep. Uh, it has been pretty widely circulated. Mm -hmm. And anyway, we talked a bit about the fact you know, in some sense, one place that one should stand to understand what's going on is that there is massive frustration around some vague sense that something is way off, that the system is not functional. And many of us, including me, certainly believe that the system is rigged. I mm -hmm. believe that it is rigged in many ways that are legal and that that's not a defense of, of those things. Um, it is certainly sometimes rigged in ways that are illegal that we get hints of, which mm -hmm. of course means that there is no end of uh, false conspiracy allegations, and it's very difficult to sort between which ones are valid and which ones aren't valid, which of course requires a skill set that at some point we should um, talk about, and we have talked about. You know, We've talked about the fact that, you know, the word theory and the more I think about it, the abuse of the word theory is at the heart of so many of our dysfunctions that really as annoying as it is to have, um, you know, these semantic concerns brought to the fore in the midst of a crisis, um, in this particular case, if we were careful about it, if we just simply agreed across the board, hey, theory has a definition, hypothesis has a definition, and we are all obligated to just sort of stick to them and not blur that distinction because it's a really important one, we would be way ahead in so many different places from... I mean, I, I agree with your point about the abuse of the word, but I don't think that would help right now. I, 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 don't, I don't think that's fundamental enough to the problem uh, to, you know, I don't think solving the language problem would address any serious issues at the moment. Well, I think it would in the sense that um, to the extent that one wants to convince you of something and cause you to act, and they invoke the term theory because it carries power, right? To the extent that somebody making a analogous argument uses the term hypothesis, they've already told you what rules they've signed up for. When somebody says they're involved in critical theory, yeah. I don't know what rules they've signed up I mean, for. I don't, I, don't, I don't think this is where we want to spend time today, really. But I will say that pretty much anyone hearing the word hypothesis does have this sense of what it means, but that theory has been so abused that, you know, you hear people saying, oh, well, that's just my theory. That's, you know, and so, right. you know, it, it, it means everything. And without the counterpoint to hypothesis, I don't think it actually carries the kind of weight that you think it does. And I'm not saying that that hasn't hindered the conversation um, when, you know, conspiracy theory is the word of the day as opposed to conspiracy hypothesis. But I don't think resolving that actually um, helps us much. But I, I, well, I, th but I think we should move Oh, hold on. I just want to make the point that okay. um, we are dealing, you know, in so many different realms with the downstream consequences of this, right? Where we have, you know, string theory effectively owns modern physics. And the question is, it is jumping. It is not even a hypothesis in the sense that we don't have any predictions from. It. And so to the extent that it has effectively taken over a field, and the point is it has taken over a field from a very weak position. Um, I mean, you're, not, you're not telling me anything I don't agree with. I, we disagree about whether or not this is the important conversation to be having right now. I just don't think it is. All right. Uh, I will uh, continue to, to fight this quixotic you can, you can beat the battle. drum. I just don't think that drum is going to rise to the top of the importance ladder.
All right. That's not a I'm, thing. I'm, that didn't make any sense. That didn't work. Uh, <laughs> it worked well enough. I mean, yeah. for, you know, for yeah. live internet uh, discourse, sure. I suppose. Yeah. You, you were going to say something about David Graeber, I think, or maybe. maybe well, I was going to say um, that this was really a, a riff on your, um, your bit about gratitude, mm -hmm. which is that many people have, a, have arrived at the conclusion that there's something wrong with human interaction. And one thing that seems mm -hmm. to be wrong is that our ability to find ways to be important to each other is just severely curtailed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you and I are lucky in the sense that the modern uh, era has delivered us tools to be important to a lot more people than we would ever meet mm -hmm. under normal circumstances. That's pretty cool, yeah. right? But the point is it's also just a weird and very arbitrary concentration of a kind of value where, you know, we can tap into reaching a lot of people, whereas most people have a hard time reaching anyone just because of the economic realities of of modernity. So anyway, um, thank you for alerting us to the fact that we um, are doing something positive in your lives. And um, the gifts are very, very meaningful. And uh, we do spend time thinking about each of them. Yeah. That's and right. sharing them with our children who one of our children is obviously hard at work in the other room, clicking away, making this podcast happen. That's right. All right. So there's a question about where we should go first. And I think the first place to go is, um, or second place to go, is to talk about the progress with the lab leak hypothesis that occurred uh, in the last week, yeah. I believe. Well, my... my notes uh, suggest in which a conspiracy hypothesis is accepted by the mainstream with no acknowledgement that that is what has happened. And yes, this was published uh, in the New York, in New York Magazine on, why is there no date? Fascinating. Oh, January 4th, 2021. So yeah, in, within the last week. So January ago. 4th, so roughly a lifetime ago. Um, by Nicholson Baker called the Lab Leak Hypothesis. Yes, and it's quite Good. Um, I mean, maybe Zach should put it up. Yeah, I think he yeah. should. I send him a, a link to it. Zach, do you want to? It's also on my screen if you want to show it there. Okay. Um, so this article is very, very well written, mm -hmm. and it covers a lot of the people that I hold in high esteem who have been um, both courageous in discussing the lab leak hypothesis, including Yuri Dagan, who was on the Dark Horse podcast. Um, and some others who uh, I've become aware of who um, have bucked the academic trend and mm -hmm. talked about yep. this. And what it does is it takes the lab leak hypothesis and it legitimizes it so that now anybody can discuss it. And the reason that this is so important is that we have this period between which it was obvious that there was something to discuss and the mainstream has effectively been forced to admit that. And that period is going to be lost to history, I have a feeling, but its yeah. significance is uh, hard to overstate. And I mean, I am flabbergasted that this is a point that needs to be made. But when you say there's a period during which, uh, between which it was obvious that there was something to be discussed and now it's entered the mainstream and so we're sort of allowed to discuss it. And this is a period that lasted well more than half a year. Um, because we, we began talking about it on this podcast in April mm -hmm. of 2020. Um, 
What you said is exactly right, but this nuance, which is not really nuance, will be missed by some people. It is obvious that there was something to be discussed. What you have said is not. It is obvious that it is true. This is, in fact, your distinction between theory and hypothesis, right? That the idea that it is a possibility that we should be considering on the table, as opposed to we've got an idea that is true. It's that this is a you know, this, there was a, an animal in the market in Wuhan, and that's what, that's the origin of this virus. That is the only thing we're allowed to consider. At the point back in April, May, June, et cetera, of last year, that you had scientists, no less, credentialed scientists working as scientists, earning their pay as scientists, who said there is one and only one possible explanation for where this virus came from, and for you to think anything else is irresponsible. That right there is anti-scientific. Because what scientists do is they observe something and they say, what are all the possible explanations for this thing? And lab leak was obviously a possibility from the very beginning. And by saying it was obviously a possibility is not saying it was obviously true, saying it was obviously a possibility. So it was obviously a possibility. And interestingly, um, you can see it was captured in my Twitter feed um, exactly how early it was obvious that it was a possibility. And mm -hmm. so the percentage likelihood that it was the explanation for, for the pandemic has changed for, mm -hmm. for me and presumably for everybody uh, checking in with that idea. Mm -hmm. But Zach, do you want to show the um, screenshot of my Twitter feed from February 4th? Screenshot of my Twitter feed from February 4th seems <laughs> really specific. Um, so there are two screenshots here. Boy, can you put that on a bigger screen, Zach? Okay, so um, I will just start telling you what's here. And uh, okay, so... Let's just set the stage here for a second, Heather. Mm -hmm. You and I were in the Amazon. So this, is, this is February 4th, 2020. February 4th. This is 4th. like less than a week after we got back from Ecuador. I think it, I was hoping you'd know the exact date offhand. Maybe you don't. But, which date? date uh, what? That we left the Amazon, the date at which we went from being completely without communication in, the, in Yasuni in Ecuador to returning. I mean, cell phone reception again becomes possible at the military checkpoint um, when you are transitioning back to the town affectionately known as Coca. That's going to have been January 24th. January 24th. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we came back to the, to the U.S. on January 28th. Um, so the fact of the coronavirus, what was then called novel coronavirus, mm -hmm. was unknown to us while we were in the Amazon. We emerged and at uh, while we were in Otavalo, um, in the Andes, in the Andes, uh, decompressing and getting ready to return home. Literally decompressing, given the lower air pressure up there. <laughs> wow! So yes, we were decompressing <laughs> yes. in the Andes, uh, looking at hummingbirds and all sorts of other stuff. But uh, in any case, we emerged from the Amazon. The world had begun to grapple with the idea of a novel coronavirus, and mm -hmm. you know. If you think back to where you as a listener were uh, to the novel coronavirus at that point, you know, there have been a number of these um, emergent viruses, you know, SARS and MERS and 
bird flu and things like this. And, um, you know, so there's always this question about, oh, no, there's this virus that's been spotted. What's going to happen? Is it going to take over the world? Is it going to burn itself out? And so it's very hard to tell at the point that we caught wind of the novel coronavirus how bad it was going to be. Mm -hmm. There was a nature paper. And, and is that what you're referencing here and what's on screen here? Yes, there was a nature paper that outlined the um, the wet market hypothesis and the fact that it had been, uh, that the virus had come from bats. And I thought as a bat researcher, I thought it made sense for me to look at this paper. Mm -hmm. I'm always a little bit troubled when um, uh, diseases are associated with bats because people don't know how to calibrate it. There are so many species of bats. And yes, bats do vector a lot of diseases because they fly and therefore they're good vectors. But, you know, people don't understand. It's not, you know, the bats. little brown bat in your backyard, if you're listening to this in the United States, is not vectoring these diseases. Right. It's not likely to. And it's not likely to carry rabies either, though that's a possibility. It's a possibility, um, but, but unlikely. Unlikely. But um, in any case, the um, the fact is the viruses are the enemy of the bats too. So in some sense, right. we're on the same side and I, I don't like to see bats demonized. But anyway, mm -hmm. I thought I would look at the paper. I would read it. It said, you know, uh, bat-borne coronavirus Wuhan uh, seafood market. And I just thought I would weigh in and say, I've looked at it. It makes sense to me. And I did. And that was at 1030 in the morning uh, of February 4th. Mm -hmm. And I immediately got pushback from followers who said, oh, so it's just a coincidence that there's a bio uh, safety level four laboratory studying bad coronaviruses in Wuhan where the virus emerged, right? I didn't, a fact about which you were previously unaware. Completely. Sure. And I thought, that's a hell of a coincidence. Mm -hmm. There's probably something about the story I don't know. At least I need to understand why that coincidence is not stunning, right? And that piece of information puts this hypothesis on the table as something that obviously needs to be considered. Obviously needs to be considered. Mm -hmm. And as Yuri D Dagan pointed out when I talked to him and as I thought... One of the things you need to know, you know, I wasn't really deeply thinking about what a biosafety level four laboratory was, right. and I had no idea how many of them there were. You mm -hmm. know, if there were a thousand such laboratories, and the fact that there's one in Wuhan may not be significant. It's just a coincidence. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's one and it happens to be in Wuhan, it's a spectacular coincidence, and it happens there are a handful. But that one of the two primary ones studying coronavirus, bat-borne coronaviruses in Wuhan is certainly a stunning fact. And many, many of us who are on the heterodox side of this question have had this exact same experience, which is as soon as you realize that Wuhan is the location of such a lab, that it was studying exactly these viruses, and it is the first place that humanity becomes aware of this virus, you know that there, if you're an honest broker, you know that there's something that has to be considered. Yeah. So this, um, this paper, this article, this magazine article that's out this week in the New York Magazine, uh, cites a piece from 2012 uh, is published in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which I would love to read just the first two paragraphs from because it's directly relevant sure. here. So 2000, um, sure, if you want to, it's on my screen. It's called The Unacceptable Risks of a Man-Made Pandemic by Lynn Klotz and Edward Sylvester. Uh, for those of you looking, I don't know why the first paragraph is partially replicated, so I'm reading the first two paragraphs even though it looks like I just skipped one. 
Now that world attention finally has been focused on the potentially human contagious H5N1 Asian bird flu virus, remember this is written in 2012, the international research community should take steps to deal with three other potential pandemic pathogens. Two are among history's nightmares, smallpox, which killed or maimed millions of people over centuries as it ravaged the world, and the resurrected 1918 pandemic flu virus, which may have killed 50 million people worldwide over just two years. The third is Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, a newcomer that proved how lethal it could be in one natural outbreak during 2002 and 2003 when it killed 9.6% of those it infected, a fatality rate almost four times higher than the 1918 flus. These potential pandemic pathogens, or PPPs, pose a danger that goes well beyond the potential of other hazardous microbes that have made the news. The PPPs are all extremely deadly highly contagious or potentially highly contagious in humans and not currently present in human populations, meaning it would be a disaster to reintroduce them into the population. Of the three, smallpox, researched at only two facilities in the world by international agreement, poses the smallest threat of laboratory escape. At Russia's Vector and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, lab workers have been vaccinated to prevent infections to themselves that might spread to others outside the lab. In stark contrast to the strict controls on smallpox research, however, SARS, the 1918 flu virus, and potentially human-contagious H5N1 bird flu are studied in laboratories throughout the world using less than the highest biocontainment, known as Biosafety Level 4 or BSL4, and there is no approved and stockpiled vaccine for any of them. So, yes, the... uh, uh there is awareness of the hazard, which in fact resulted in an intense effort to study bat corona viruses. Mm-hmm. Um, and there has also been a competing awareness of the danger of studying them, and in particular of studying using techniques called gain-of-function research, where viruses are enhanced to see what they will be like when they become truly infectious. Uh, which and the hypothesis, the lab leak hypothesis, I think for all of us who have tracked it carefully, is not, uh, there is a version of it in which the virus simply ends up in a laboratory and unmodified escapes from the laboratory into the world. That's very unlikely to be true because the virus that would have ended up in that laboratory would not have been highly transmissible between people. And if there's one thing you can say about SARS-CoV-2, it's that it is highly transmissible between humans, right? It's a trick it's very, very good at. And so the question is, where did that happen? And while possible, the idea of this virus happened to be in a lab, it was unmodified, is less parsimonious than this virus was out in, in the wild and transmitted without having an intermediate step in a lab. Right. Well, there one would expect an evolutionary period in which the virus either picked up a skill through recombination with some other virus. Ah, so time to evolve without human artificial selection. Right. Okay. So you, you, there's a number of things you would expect, and we have evidence for exactly none of them, right? <laughs> it doesn't have a long period of time in which it learned to go from person to person. It mm-hmm. doesn't have, uh, you know, many people have hypothesized things like pangolins and other intermediaries, um, but there's no evidence that this actually occurred. Um, so anyway, there's a, there's a whole lot of mystery. But what I wanted to point out about these screenshots is that mm-hmm. they actually happen to document a thought process and give it a timestamp. So mm-hmm. February 4th, 10.30, I tweet, I have looked at the nature paper cited here and the evidence that the novel coronavirus came from bats, possibly Rhinolophus affinis, uh, or another species, sorry, it's at a distance, it's hard for me to read, or another species that shares roosts with it, uh, is fairly compelling. How it jumped to humans is less clear, but wet markets are likely. Okay, yeah. that was 10.30. 
by my next tweet, which was 11.29, I said, several followers have pointed to a competing hypothesis, and the Nature paper does not allow us to distinguish between the two. The virus likely comes from bats. That much is true. The bushmeat trade is dangerous. Also true. Those things may well be unrelated in this case. Now, my reference to the bushmeat trade mm -hmm. is obliquely about HIV, which the best explanation for how HIV ended up in humans is um, basically chimp butchery that resulted in the virus transmitting to a human. Mm -hmm. um, so in any case, that's less than an hour by one minute, right? The between your two. My, between my mm -hmm. two tweets. The fact of the uh, BSL-4 lab in Wuhan is sufficient to raise the skepticism of an honest broker thinking in a scientific mode. Mm -hmm. It didn't mean that it was the probable answer there. Now, the irony is, as the lab leak hypothesis has uh, been defended by courageous people willing to take the risk of being dismissed as conspiracy theorists or Trump loyalists or whatever it is that the accusations have been, um, as that hypothesis has, you know, clawed its way into uh, grudging acknowledgement by the mainstream that it is something that reasonable people might consider, mm -hmm. the explanations that were offered as official have fallen right? Everybody, including China, acknowledges the wet market had nothing to do with it. There weren't bats for sale there. Um, so the point is, the other hypotheses have crumbled even as this one has gained steam, right? Now, a person could have a wild conspiracy theorist, that is to say somebody who is not exerting any sort of analytical discipline, could have landed on the right answer here, and they would turn out to have been I won't say right because we still don't know that the lab leak is what happened, but would turn out to be in this credible position almost by accident, mm -hmm. right? A person who was methodical and careful and just simply following the logic and the evidence where it led would have ended up here too. So you can't really distinguish those two things. Um, but over time, one of these hypotheses has gained ground because it is impossible to refute so far, and the circumstantial evidence is very strong. There's no direct evidence, but the circumstantial evidence is incredibly strong. As we iteratively fail to falsify, falsify a hypothesis, it looks ever more likely to be an accurate representation of underlying reality. Right. And what's more... If it turns out lab leak is not the explanation, all of the things that we will have learned in the attempt to falsify that hypothesis are now basically a description of what a better hypothesis would have to explain mm. in order to take the lead. Right. And so people will remember back in, would have been June or July, uh, I said that one of the ways to deal with this stuff responsibly is to... Uh, rank to give a percentage chance that you think some possibility if you have competing hypotheses what you think the percentage chance is and i made a little flow chart and i went through all of the things that i could think of that could possibly explain where this virus had come from and i ranked lab leak as very high something yeah, like i think this was far earlier i think this was may frankly may have been anyway may have been may mm -hmm. but in any case there's a way to do this and there's a way to do it responsibly and the amazing thing is when you do it responsibly even when you have you know a credential that uh means that somebody has uh, agreed that you have this, the toolkit with which to do such a thing even then you face these amazing appalling accusations of being 
uh, a conspiracy theorist, right? Um, being irresponsible, spreading uh, false information. Um, you know, I mean, even uh, Peter Daszak, who it turns out was central to the funding pipeline that resulted in the money that allowed this coronavirus to be, or these coronaviruses to be studied in the Wuhan lab, this guy with this incredible conflict of interest, right? He was leveling accusations of conspiracy theorists against anybody, including us, for, for talking about this stuff. So the point here is two things. Well, and as usual, you know, follow the actual conflict. It's easy to accuse people of having, you know, having secret financial connections, and some people presumably do, uh, or being grifters or whatever. But when there's a known conflict of interest uh, by someone who is accusing other people of uh, spreading information for which there was no support, but you can actually point to the support or the failure to falsify, well, then the conflict of interest speaks really loudly. Yes, the conflict of interest um, uh, is deafening at some level. And in, in Peter Daszak's case, it's just amazing uh, how far he has gone to uh, ridicule and erode the credibility of anybody who even raised this possibility um, in public. But um, so this comes up here for two reasons. One, this is the week in which this hypothesis has become mainstream and suddenly you're, you should expect a very different level of conversation about it because effectively people have been signaled that it is now safe to acknowledge the obvious, right? Safe to acknowledge the obvious. Now, how many topics do we face this kind of situation? Why is it ever unsafe to acknowledge the obvious? Ever. Gosh, I just have this image of someone like peering out from a storm cellar door. Is it safe to acknowledge the obvious? Right. Is it safe to acknowledge the obvious? Is it mm -hmm. is it safe, you know, to acknowledge that men and women are different phenomena? Mm -hmm. You know, well, we'll get back to you, right? Yeah. Not all that safe at the moment. Maybe we'll get there. Um, mm -hmm. But the question really, and the interesting thing, this is just happenstance that this arises in the same week as the uh, insurrection at the Capitol mm -hmm. and if need be, I will defend that word mm -hmm. um, in a moment here. But um, the insurrection at the Capitol and what may be much more important, which is the downstream, uh, at least narrative consequences. So things have been moving incredibly fast in the last day. And ostensibly, that is the result of the, uh, the invasion of the Capitol building. Some of it can't possibly be. I, I frankly didn't have enough time uh, in becoming aware of the fact of a new anti-terrorism bill that is ostensibly the result of uh, or responsive to the events at the Capitol. Um, you know, I wasn't able to look at it, but this can't possibly be uh, responsive. It has to have been uh, ready to go in large measure, and then you know, some giant, many, many, many page bill that was that someone is arguing was created in response to yes. what happened on Wednesday. Uh, is that, that is I, my I don't, understanding. I don't know anything about this. Well, the so. number I've seen was something like twenty thousand pages. Now that could just be rumor, and I'd like somebody to validate that. I went looking for it, and time ran out uh, on me. Uh, before the live stream. But nonetheless, yes, there does appear to have been a lot of stuff ready to go. And then the events at the Capitol seem to have created pretext for it to be unleashed. And um, what I so what I want our uh, listeners to do is to keep what has happened with the lab leak hypothesis 
and then what has, you know, the latest chapter is it has gone mainstream. I want them to keep that in mind as they try to grapple with what is taking place ostensibly as a result of an egregious breach at the Capitol building. All right. So, um, all right, how to put this in context. So what has happened? Just for uh, the sake of catching people up, there was a rally encouraged by the president at the Capitol. Now, this rally was apparently much larger than most people understand. The number of people who entered the Capitol building was relatively small. The number of people who were present present in this rally was um, quite huge. And uh, we are in the awkward position. Um, We have been working, in fact, overnight trying to get um, processed and ready for release. An interview I did uh, yesterday uh, with Jeremy Lee Quinn, who people will remember I interviewed before, um, Jeremy Lee Quinn happened to have been in Washington at that rally as a journalist and actually went into the Capitol um, and witnessed what took place firsthand. And what he has to say uh, is quite shocking and quite a good corrective to the narrative that um, that uh, is is circulating. So that very long conversation that you had with an eyewitness journalist to the scene uh, should be up uh, both on YouTube and as a podcast uh, momentarily, frankly. So YouTube is telling us that video processing is taking longer than expected. Um, I don't know what to make of it. Probably video processing is just taking longer than expected. But in any case, um, please do take a look at that uh, interview. I think you'll find it fascinating, and I think you'll find it very hard to um, dismiss as resident in some part of the political spectrum. The fact is, uh, Jeremy Lee Quinn uh, is a uh, a progressive, lefty, self-described uh, pacifist anarchist. Um, I'm a, a a person uh, of the what I would call the intellectual left, and here we are, you know, discussing. Uh, people who were decidedly on the right, who breached the Capitol uh, for many different reasons. Um, you know, it was not one of the things we talk about is that it was not a coherent um, uh, event that people had. You know, there were people there who were engaged in what they thought was a coup, and there were people there trying to prevent what they thought was a coup, right? And they were somehow in the same uh, the same protest. So it's a you know it's an it's an event that really requires people to think very carefully about about what its nature was. And indecipherable from one another in photographs, presumably. Right. And in fact, um, you know, I do think there's, I haven't been able to put my finger on exactly how to think about it or phrase it, but there is some interesting yin-yang, you know, the anarchists, uh, the Antifa, Black Bloc anarchists that we have seen rioting all summer uh, make an effort to de-individuate and they, you know, they become the black block, mm-hmm. right? And this is about uh, not displaying their identity. Now, if you pay close attention, it's clear that to them, they do have identities and that, you know, so they still can earn cred with each other. Um, but from the point of view of the outsiders, it's just a bunch of people wearing so much black that you can't deduce who they are. Whereas in the insurrection at the Capitol, you know, you have a dude in a, a Viking... <laughs> Helmet. I mean, you something. Know, yeah, it's it's. So there was a whole lot of. Um, it's basically uh, a much more libertarian uh, 
perspective and the fact that everybody, you know, I was, I didn't, not aware that in the insurrection, there were, you know, grandmothers, Trump supporting grandmothers who entered the Capitol didn't know that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you've got dudes in Viking helmets, you've got grandmothers, you've got people carrying the Confederate flag. Um, you know, it's, it's not a clear message. It's, it's a bunch of different frustration, but at some level. Right, well, it's not, it's not coherent. Um, and, you know, in, in, in this way, I think uh, there is something in many ways, there is something analogous to the protests, which reliably became riots that were taking place in Portland almost every night for well over half a year, um, and in other cities as well, with some less regularity. In that, um, there are you know, and and you know, the treatment obviously from the media of these these two sets of events is wildly, wildly different. But in both cases, it is not a single uniform group, and so just as people on the right. Um, decrying every single person who went out into the streets to support Black Lives Matter were wrong to do so because this was not a single uni uniform force and not by far the vast majority of people who were protesting on the streets uh, in, in Portland, for instance, and elsewhere did not become rioters, but a reliable portion of people almost every night did. And um, it sounds like, I don't know what the ratios are, we may never know, but, you know, just as there was some rally uh, that, uh, that included a wide variety of people, most of whom had never had no intention of and would not have gotten wrapped up into uh, what you're calling an insurrection, you know, a siege on the Capitol. Um, but that doesn't mean that some small proportion of people didn't do that. And in both cases, the rioting, whether or not it's on a federal building in downtown Portland or the actual Capitol building in Washington, D.C., is totally unacceptable. Oh, completely unacceptable. Now, one does have to deal with, uh, and I talked about this on uh, the Trigonometry podcast, one does have to deal with the fact that the United States was born in an insurrection. Mm -hmm. And so there is an acknowledgement in our, you know, our foundational principles that there are, there are events that uh, call for something well beyond civil disobedience. In now, fact, um, can we just show very quickly here, Zach, my screen, uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed from uh, three days ago, actually from a former Princeton fellow as well, Aaron Zubia, uh, called The Founder's Guide to Knock Down, Drag Out Fighting, uh, the sub- Titled the subheadline here being the ratification debates of 1787-88 were colored by quote patriotic enthusiasms verging on violent chaos. Again, not a justification, just an historical correction of sorts uh, that our our rosy image of history, as if the U.S. was born, uh, you know, sort of Aphrodite-like on the half shell, and everyone was thrilled with it, is certainly not true. Yeah, certainly, certainly not true, but. You know, so I, I will say this whole conversation takes place uh, with a certain amount of, you know, I'm tempted to say trepidation, but let's just call it fear. Mm -hmm. There's a certain amount of fear that what is taking place on the major platforms is coming for us and that the important points that we are trying to make will not only be lost, but that are attempting to make them may hasten what will likely come for us. Not for the first time, so we will mm -hmm. come back to this. But, um, but in any case, I want to I want to somehow make this point. And to the extent that dark horse might disappear from 
this platform, I want you to remember that I made it. Okay. And the point is, you have a lot of people responding to a garbagey understanding of what is taking place, right? You have the QAnon right, right, which has a misunderstanding about where we are. Not that there, I, I don't know almost anything about the detail of the content of QAnon, mm -hmm. but it's an overly packaged view of what has gone wrong. It has filled a vacuum of information about what really runs society. This is, again, the counterpart of the confused understanding over on the BLM, Antifa, uh, black bloc left, mm -hmm. right? Which has the sense that our civilization is so evil and so far above others with respect to um, how much harm it has done that the only response to it is to tear down its structures, right? That that cannot possibly make things worse and will inevitably make things better. That is an equally confused understanding of where we are. And so you cannot have a society in which every individual gets to decide for themselves when you have reached a moment that you are obligated to rebel against the structures and tear them down, right? You can't have everybody waking up each morning and deciding whether they're in a Unabomber uh, mood or not, right? So to the extent that the founders of the country um, rebelled against a tyrannical governance structure, they were very clear-headed on why they were doing it, and they were... Um, united, and it was clearly justified. And what we have here is a small insurrection into the Capitol that is somehow the fringe. I mean, it's almost physically the fringe of this much larger protest that was at the Capitol, which is itself the fringe of the conservative movement, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, you've got these things. It's like a physical gradient, and you've got people who are, you know, wearing the Viking helmets and carrying the Confederate flags, breaching the Capitol. That's obviously completely unacceptable, and, uh, and it is an insurrection, even according to to many of them, right? You'll see this in, in uh, what they say into cameras. Um, um, however, I think it is also incumbent on us to recognize there are some very, I, I know nothing about the improvised explosive devices that were, we are told were um, found at the Capitol. I did see an image of somebody who appeared to be a, uh, a protester who had um, zip ties of the kind you would use to bind somebody's hands. These are very troubling facts, as are the Confederate flag, the Camp Auschwitz T-shirt. Um, you know, these are hallmarks of something uh, completely out of control. On the completely other hand... Unhinged. Completely unhinged. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, what I didn't see, these are right-wingers. Mm -hmm. Were any of them armed? I assume they must have been. Um, but one did not see a lot of firearms in this circumstance. So what you have is an insurrection, a, an egregious violation of the law, one that is not justified by our circumstances, but done in a way that is clearly intended to be, in some sense, symbolic. Right, So I'm not justifying it, but what I'm saying is that an honest broker would have to parse all of this nuance and that unfortunately 
what we are getting, this idea that we can decide what who's right enough to listen to, that we can take anybody who is engaging any idea that has been formally dismissed and toss them off platforms and things, is going to result in the worsening of the problem that caused the rioting this summer and the worsening of the problem that caused the breach of the Capitol, which is people don't have good information to go on. Why don't they have good information to go on? Lots of different reasons, including mundane algorithm stuff. But but the point is, this is what happens in the vacuum of analysis, is you yeah. get this kind of confusion. You get QAnon confusion on the one side and Antifa confusion on the other side. And if you want this not to characterize the way we are going forward, the thing to do is not to try to police speech online. That's a perfectly insane response to this. It's going to make it worse. Um, the right thing to do is to let those of us who know how to engage these difficult questions responsibly do it. Will we make errors? Of course, but that's the nature of civilization. So may I speak a little bit to someone else um, who we know online, uh, who I think is engaging these things responsibly, and I don't always agree with her, but I just want to share some of one of Caitlin Johnstone's most recent pieces here. Um, Zach, just briefly share. So this is uh, an independent journalist um, who publishes on Medium, and uh, she's done several pieces in the last several days. This one called The Boot is Coming Down Hard and Fast. So... Excuse me, if I may have my screen back, Zachary. Thank you. Um, the very final paragraph of what she's written here is, the correct response to a huge section of the citizenry doubting an electoral system that we've known for years is garbage would have been more transparency. Not shoving the process through and silencing people who voice doubts and making that entire faction more paranoid and crazy. This is... Um, in a piece which she begins by pointing out that Biden was in fact the original framer of what would become the Patriot Act. And uh, in uh, alongside that fact, she provides us, Caitlin Johnstone, the journalist who's written this piece, provides us a, um, a clip from an appearance on Morning Joe with the CIA, CIA analyst, <clears throat> former Times Now House Representative Alyssa Slotkin, who is informing us that the real battle against terrorism is now inside America's border. <clears throat> she says, quote, the post 9-11 era is over. The single greatest national security threat right now is our internal division, the threat of domestic uh, terrorism, the polarization that threatens our democracy. <clears throat> if we don't reconnect our two Americas, the threats will not have to come from the outside. And one, <clears throat> I find, excuse me, Totally appropriate response to this is from a woman named Whitney Webb, I don't know her, who quote tweets Slotkin, again, the uh, current House representative who was a CIA analyst. Webb says, before Congress, Alyssa worked for the CIA and the Pentagon and helped destabilize the Middle East during the Bush and Obama administrations. What she says here is essentially an open announcement that the U.S. has moved from the war on foreign terror to the war on domestic terror. This is terrifying. And um, we, you know, we should be considering <clears throat> that, you know, as you, I don't, I have not seen this, this bill that you have referenced. I don't know anything about it uh, that has apparently been produced in record time, right? Um, but it is likely to be something like back in the mid nineties, Biden produced something apparently right before actually the Oklahoma bombing um, produced something that was, you know, put up there, taken down, sort of disappeared and then repurposed effectively as the Patriot Act after 9-11. 
you know, where did the bill that is being trotted out right now start and by whom and to what purpose? Uh, hopefully we come to know the answer to that. One more thing about this, though, and I'm sure you have a lot to say. Um, returning to Representative Slotkin's claim of two Americas, I think this is actually a further divisive and dangerous formulation. And it's 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 old, right? You know, we're this two-party system. There's red and blue. There's Republicans and Democrats. But um, I at least see no evidence of there being two Americas. I see a much, much, much more fractured fractured state. And at the very least, we have three, you know, at, at the very least, because when, when Trump ascended, there were many in the Republican Party who said, no way, no how, I'm a never Trumper, I'm not going there. And similarly, as the Democrats have become woke and intersectionalist and embraced, frankly, the, the riots on the streets of America and, um, and uh, you know, other nonsense uh, there are many of us on the left who have said, that's not my left. Uh, I still consider myself uh, of the left, but not that way. And so, you know, we have talked often about finding much common cause and many common values, but disagreeing about the current state of where we're at with regard to reasonable people on the right. There are a lot of reasonable people on the left who disavow the sort of Antifa black bloc stuff, and there are many reasonable people on the right who disavow you know, Beowulf, you know, in, in the capital. And um, that makes at least three Americas. And formulating this as two Americas effectively 100% says that if I start to critique Antifa, anyone else gets to say, well, then you're in the America that embraces Trump. And if someone on the right says, I am uh, criticizing Trump, then they are therefore in the Antifa camp. No. It's not, America is not Antifa versus Trump. No way, no how. That's not the America we live in. And if it is, we're doomed. But that's, that's not what we see. You know, there, there, are, there are, I still believe, a majority, and I hope it's a strong majority of people, who are actually in the vast middle, identified as left or right, different views on how to solve the problems we have, fine. But not Antifa, not insurrectionists at the Capitol, something far more interested in actually collaborating and coming together as a country. All right. There are two important points that we have to cover um, in reference to what you're describing. Great. So there are two Americas and there aren't. And um, uh, how to describe this. So we know, and we have frequently talked about the Hidden Tribes report that says there's 67% of us that are in broad agreement about uh essentially nuanced right. non-extreme versions of the answers to all of the problems that are supposed to divide us uh, irreconcilably. Mm -hmm. irreconcilably. Um, that is clearly true. And for you and me, we have had the gift of our, you know, our the story that brought us to public attention has put us in contact with so many people on the center right that we know for sure because we have met them, hundreds mm -hmm. and hundreds of people, right, who we are supposed to be on the other side of an unbridgeable gap. And it turns out actually we are in broad agreement and we have to s search for things that we actually have substantial disagreement over. So that thing is mm -hmm. real. Yep. What is also real is that narratively speaking, it's almost like I'm imagining 
there's some substance that you can drop into a room full of people who are in that vast, exhausted middle described by the hidden tribes, and you drop that thing in, and they simply polarize to mm. other sides because narratively speaking, we are two different Americas, right? Yeah. They are not the same place. And so the fact of having an exemption from, you know, we can cross no man's land and not get shot at. In fact, we're more frequently shot at from our home side than from the other side, which often embraces us with, you know, curiosity if, you know, not a little bit of perplexity, but right. but whatever, right? Being able to transition across this boundary tells you, oh yeah, that, that uh, agreement is real. But the other thing- And there are humans on the other side. There are humans, yes, in fact, most, there are of the everywhere. most of the people on the other side are every bit as recognizable, and yes, they're confused, but it's, where is the quadrant where people aren't And the confused? extremists on both sides are, are the ones that are difficult to grok and reckon with. Right. They are, um, they are driving the system, and they are causing the narrative to be an unreconcilable mm -hmm. or irreconcilable. Okay, the other point that I want to make, so there are two Americas and there aren't is one. The other point I want to make is that Every time I hear the word terrorism invoked, it sends shivers down my spine. And the reason is because I know it is a legally special word. It mm -hmm. has been made into a legally special word. And what it causes to happen is the suspension of all of the protections that would normally be afforded to people. Um, and so here, uh, Zach, you want to put up that uh, screenshot? Here is the Washington Post, and I would remind you that the Washington Post is a Jeff Bezos property which connects it to Amazon, which is connected to the CIA. I have no idea what that has to do with what they do and don't believe and what they do and don't publish, but nonetheless... It was one of the most terrifying sentences yet today. Well, yeah, okay. it's a rough one. And the thing yep. is, I want you to pay close attention. I didn't say that I have an understanding of what goes on inside the Washington Post and why. All I can say is that it's not hard to connect the superficial dots and that just like the fact of a biosafety level four coronavirus lab in Wuhan forces you to ask the question, the connection of the Washington Post to, uh, you know, intelligence is one that it raises questions. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's some perfectly satisfying answer, but I don't know it. Um, in any case, invoking the term terrorism causes all sorts of special... So have you read, for, for people who are just listening, what this headline says? So the headline says, what happened at the Capitol was domestic terrorism, lawmakers uh, and experts say. Now, again, under normal circumstances, what we would make of what happened at the Capitol, I don't think it's terrorism. Now, I did call it an insurrection, mm -hmm. right? An insurrection is the most serious of crimes. But, you know, I actually made this point in an article that I think was put so long ago, I don't even remember. I think it was published in Common Dreams after, was it the Charlie, Charlie Hebdo, Hebdo attack? Mm -hmm. in, um, in Paris, yeah. And my point was, look, terror is a tactic. It's sinquanon is that an entity that doesn't have the military strength to hurt you does have potentially the ability to make you hurt yourself if it can spook you enough. So the reason that terror is at the center of that word is that terror causes you to behave in a way that is self-destructive, much like a bee does not have the power to kill you, but it might have the power to induce you into an immune reaction that might kill a you. A bee, you said. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I, you know, the bee doesn't have an interest in doing that. But the point is, if 
you know, it's not the bee sting that kills you. It's your immune reaction to it that kills you, mm -hmm. if, you if you die from a bee sting. Terrorism is psychological. It's a, it's a psyop, right? Mm -hmm. And so the point is, you know, people can be induced to doing self-harm through fear. Now, the question is, is what happened at the Capitol, was that designed to induce fear in Americans? I don't think so. It was an insurrection, but it was not, uh, you know, it was not designed to be terrifying. And that thing means, I believe, that those who would say it's obviously terrorism and what they're really saying is, you agree it's very, very bad, and therefore it's terrorism. And I do not agree that that which is very, very bad is inherently terrorism. Right. Um, you know, to, to the point, uh, th this Representative Slotkin, uh, who seems to be suggesting that we need to move away from considering outside forces as the biggest threat to the U.S. to considering inside forces, add to that the observation that researchers say, in quotes, uh, that most domestic terrorism is from the right. And, you know, in what way is that established? I have no idea, but I can guarantee you I don't have much faith in those methods. That if, you know, these researchers are the same ones who um, helped turn the SPLC into an organization that has no credibility anymore, then, you know, on what basis um, are a bunch of organizations being called domestic terrorist organizations um, on the right but not on the left? There's probably, there's almost certainly political bias there. Therefore... If we are being told by representatives that the biggest threat is coming from the inside and it has already been established, in quotes, um, through pseudoscientific means, but trust the authorities, uh, that most of that uh, domestic threat from the inside is from the right, well, then it's not hard to get to, therefore, we need to be concerned about the threats from the right. Uh, and and that's it. Perfect. Now, for those of you looking for balance... I can't remember when it would have been, but somebody may find it. They will recall that I also blanched when Antifa was accused yep. of being a terrorist organization. Mm -hmm. Now, I blanched at it for the very same reason. And I would mm -hmm. point out what I said at the time was I remember when uh, Occupy was taking place. And I will speak mm -hmm. only for myself. I participated mm -hmm. in Occupy. I should have bailed on it earlier because it got taken over by anarchists with whom I had no agreement. But nonetheless, as a person protesting the TARP program and too big to fail and the financial crisis and all that led to it, um, to have the government say, oh, these are domestic terror, this is a terror threat, right? And therefore avail itself of all of these extraordinary uh, exemptions and tools was truly frightening. And I don't like seeing that weapon pointed at anybody who isn't an actual terrorist. Now, mm -hmm. The argument with respect to Antifa and Black Bloc is stronger, I believe, because in fact, it's not terror in the sense of a, a big explosion that causes people to misunderstand the danger that they themselves are going to be blown up. But there and is... marching through neighborhoods with lights and yelling at people right. and breaking windows. Waking people yeah. in the middle of the night and, homes. and yeah. harassing them does induce fear. So at least, you know, there's some sort of connection. But mm -hmm. again, I think the thing is, hey, that's a magic word. Terrorism is a magic word. And when mm -hmm. you hear people invoking it because it then justifies the next thing that they do against somebody that maybe you don't like, yeah. boy, this is the moment that you need to stand up and say, actually, what are you doing? 
And so is there, I mean, is there sort of a Russell, Russell conjugation uh, analog uh, for terrorism that we could slot in here? I'm not sure. I'm not sure there is. I'm not sure there's a simple word that we can use instead here. Well, I mean, unfortunately, what there is... It's going to require a little bit more language. Yes. I think yeah. the thing is there are a lot of terms for things that don't rise to the level of terrorism. Right. But right? no like big category that can be slotted in at the same level of inclusiveness. Yeah. I, uh, I don't think so. And I, so yeah. I think the answer is it's actually... It's a category that either applies narrowly to those who would avail themselves of a tactic that causes people to miscalibrate a hazard to themselves and overreact. So mm -hmm. for example, you know, uh, the 9-11 attacks killed 3,000 Americans and we lost more than 6,000 people fighting on foreign battlefields and spent, uh, you know, many more dollars in fighting off those terrorists and then the harm the terrorists were able to inflict but watching buildings collapse was distorting right it's very hard to calibrate how serious a threat the people who were able to make that happen were to the u.s and so in some sense we reacted uh in a way that did you know i'm not we reacted in a way that did more measurable harm to us than the terrorists were able to marshal, right? We can talk about whether or not the harm we did to ourselves was worthwhile. Obviously, what happened in Iraq was an abomination as a result of the fact that it was under false pretenses, et cetera, et cetera. Right. The whole thing, that, that was just a lie. Yep. Yeah. But in any case, um, so terrorism is a special word. Every time you hear somebody invoke it, you really need to ask the question whether or not they're invoking it because the thing that they're pointing it at is clearly terrorism or they're invoking it because of all of the things it allows them to do next. Right. And that's the thing that worries me. Um, most. Yeah. Are you communicating or are you uh, creating a tool, uh, giving yourself power with use of a tool that you will then use in ways that we can probably foresee, but we will not be able to stop once you've invoked the tool? Right. Now, this brings us to the final piece, which is the um, breathtaking purge of people from social media that has uh, been taking place Geez, I don't know exactly how many hours it would be, but um, since sometime yesterday, mm -hmm. um, there has been a breathtaking purge. That purge has included um, the president. It has included the president not only um, in his private account, but his official presidential account and every other account he would uh, attempt to use to communicate. And this has been, of course, cheered by all sorts of people who, uh, you know, see only um, if this is bad for Trump, then I like it, um, who are, of course, just... Somehow forgetting that censorship that you like is always followed by censorship that you don't. Uh, right. I, either they never learned about the Rawlsian veil of ignorance or they've forgotten the lesson, but my goodness, is this going to be used uh, in ways that you don't like down the road? And there's a question about why... Why it's happening in the way it is. Of course, many of the people who are um, being tossed off the uh, major platforms are conservatives. And the problem is that lulls a lot of people who are not conservatives into imagining that um, whatever is going on is is an academic concern because it won't come for them. But right. Um, let, let me point out a couple things about it. One, hey, Zach, could you put up the uh, screenshot of the Articles of Unity account? 
So this is a screenshot from today of the Articles of Unity Twitter account. The Articles of Unity Twitter account was the official account of the Unity movement that at the time was advancing a plan to fend off both the Republicans and the Democrats and put the presidency in the hands of a left-right partnership team that would be above politics and non-ideological. And actually patriotic. Actually patriotic. The three characteristics were uh, patri uh, capable, courageous patriots. That was qualifications for the job. Now, I feel like a few of those people still remain. A few of those people still remain. They do. But here's the point. If you think that this censorious instinct of Twitter and Facebook and Google is about people whose beliefs we all understand to be anathema, wrong, dangerous, etc., mm -hmm. then you need to grapple with the fact that it is uh, only months ago that these very same entities took up arms against a decidedly nonpartisan, non-ideological effort, which you may have liked, you may have disliked it, but the mm -hmm. point is they availed themselves of the right to close down this account. Why did they do it? Well, they said, we violated the rules. We went through an intense investigation to find evidence of what they had said we had done. It wasn't there. It didn't result in them unsuspending the account. It remains suspended. So this account was suspended without a justifiable explanation and remains so to this day, right? That tells you something. Now, I wish we had more examples. There are a few, but um, I wish we had more examples of a high profile so that people could understand that while it's going to tell you what it's doing is getting rid of dangerous conservatives who are espousing views that will cause people, to, you know, will cause harm, what it is really doing is getting rid of people that are, inconvenient for it. And yes, many of those people are conservatives, but it is not in any way the thing that is at the center of these purges. And the, and the Overton window of what is inconvenient will, of course, shift. The Overton, well, it will be shifted to whatever is convenient. And I would point out, hey, Zach, can you put up the uh, Facebook, the tweet about Facebook? Okay, so here is another case. This is not about Articles of Unity officially, but uh, viewers will remember that my Facebook account, which I barely used, at one point I was a user of Facebook, but walked away from it largely after the Evergreen debacle. Facebook um, tossed me off, said that they had already done an internal review, that there was no going back, that I was permanently uh, uh, having my account suspended. Uh, I raised a ruckus publicly, which brought down a lot of heat on them, and then they gave a preposterous explanation and said I had triggered algorithms that were looking uh, for inauthentic behavior, um, and they were sorry. Now, where you know, I learned this on Twitter. I never got any official communication mm -hmm. or anything. Now, okay, that's and what... without your audience, you would have had no recourse, right? Okay, so I have, you know, 400 plus thousand Twitter followers. That allows me to generate a fair amount of heat. But the point is the very same weapons are directed at people who just don't happen to be lucky enough to have that many followers. And right. so they remain suspended. And uh, our good friend Jordan Greenhall has been suspended from Facebook without explanation. I believe he remains suspended. Um, the Dr. Rollergator satire account was suspended for... Uh, saying it was things. caps, wasn't it? 
<laughs> suspended was, for using cats. He was suspended for <laughs> not using his indoor voice. I mean, <laughs> crocodiles I mean, never use. Yeah, their crocodilians voice. they don't have yeah. an indoor voice. Um, no, I don't. I don't know what the pretense was. I'm not sure that he, the guy who runs the account, ever found out either. Well, they there were some tweets they wanted him to remove, mm. but tellingly, the very things in those tweets that they claimed violated their rules were quotes of other accounts that were still up and had not been suspended for saying them. So anyway, a completely preposterous and inconsistent explanation. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, oh, and I, Zach, do you want to, so this also is not just about tech platforms. Um, you want to show the Harper's screenshot? Um, so this, I, I have not had time to delve deeply here. I learned about this just before the live stream. This person was fired shortly after writing this article for Harper's. I started reading it. Wait, this is from 2018? Am I missing something? Well, it says 2018, archive 2018. I hope I'm not making an error here. I don't see that. Uh, she's talking about in the URL. Mm-hmm. I've just, I, so Walter Kern is an excellent writer and he used to do a lot of the opening essays. Um, I don't know anything about um, this story at all. Um, but anyway, you, you may, I, I don't know what well, you're going to say about this. I don't I, know about you, this story. You're raising a question. I don't want to make a mistake uh, if, if I'm uh, getting wind of something now that is actually not relevant to our current situation. But even if this story is not what I thought it was. We have at least one case of a musician being canceled by their, um, their uh, record company, their record label, um, for apparently the crime of holding conservative viewpoints. Mm. So anyway, what are we to make of all this? Well, a couple things. One, I would point out we are living in a completely novel circumstance that is not anticipated by our constitution and we are forever caught in the following bind. We hold freedom of speech as a high value, but we are arbitrarily held to the protections that were delivered to us by the founders who could not possibly have imagined a world of tech platforms that would control um, the equivalent of uh, paper and ink. And right. They, they, they only knew to name the press in the First Amendment, for instance. Well, they knew to protect us from government incursion, which they saw as the most dangerous uh, threat to the freedom of, uh, of exchange. And the problem is, and this is the place where the conservatives inevitably trip up, mm -hmm. which is, okay, free speech is important. Why? It's important because it is the mechanism through which we hash out what is true, what we must consider. It is basically the realm in which nuance is dealt with. There's a ton of garbage in speech. Probably most things that are spoken are garbage. But the point is you cannot separate out the fact of um, heterodox speech from nonsense speech. There is no rule you can apply. There's nobody with expertise good enough to surgically separate the two so that what you're left with is the high quality heterodoxy and uh, you are freed from the noise, right? It can't be done. It's not a job that can be done. In light of the fact that it can't be done, we have to be free to talk about anything and everything. And then it, in retrospect, we can say what the important heterodoxy 
um, was. So just simply the idea of free speech is important, okay? Once you have the idea that free speech is necessary to the functioning of a society like ours, especially one in which consent of the governed is the basis of legitimate government, then the question is, how do you protect it? And the fact that the founders protected us from government incursion and didn't protect us from private incursion uh, is just an accident of history. Hmm. The fact is the heterodox speech needs to be protected um, in the environment in which it takes place. And conservatives will very frequently say, well, these are private platforms. They're entitled to bar people as they will. And the answer is actually this analysis doesn't hold. For one thing, they're private platforms in a sense, but they are traveling on an internet that we publicly financed the construction of, right? What's more, they function as a public square. Especially in the era of COVID. I mean, even more so. And we will go back to a moment uh, in which we can actually convene in a public square. But uh, they they are, for many of us, the only thing we've got. Well, even at the point that the public square is, again, the public square, the public square doesn't have the scale right. in order to allow us to have a conversation at the scale at which we need to be governed. Right. And so the idea of these private concerns having absolutely arbitrary rights to interfere with anybody's speech, including the president's, and yes, the president can hold a press conference, but you know, where will that press conference be seen? How many people will get wind of it? You know, in effect, yes, there's a technical ability to um, to speak, you know, to, you can shout out your window. And if people really want to hear you, maybe they'll, you know, come stand outside your building. But that is not a meaningful, a meaningful challenge to the control that the tech platforms now have. And I would point out that in effect, what conservatives are very likely to leap on, which is the... Um, essentially private property rights that are the basis of the argument that if you own a platform, you don't have to let just anybody speak on it, you know, and obviously uh, that's true at one level. If you and I started a, you know, a small, you know, mom and pop publishing house, we don't have to publish anybody who, you know, wants to throw a manifesto our way. But these things are functioning in a different way. They, they mm -hmm. although Twitter and Facebook and Google are not monopolies individually because each one has the other in its sphere. Together, they effectively function as a monopoly, and they are acting in concert here to limit the access of certain voices to um, the audience. Right. And I mean, one, one piece of evidence f to that point in the last 72 hours is that the uh, conservative-leaning alternative to Twitter, Parler, um, has had its app removed by Google from whatever the equivalent of the Google, you know, the Apple Store over on Google is, and apparently Apple is likely to do the same thing uh, from the Apple Store. So, uh, at the point that uh, that there is a competitor to Twitter, um, <clears throat> but it has an ideological bent that may be the mirror image of what Twitter's ideological bent is, at least in terms of what the CEO is willing to do and say. Um, the fact that other big tech is willing to step in and say, no, we won't distribute, we won't, we won't facilitate this thing being out there in the world, uh, that, that looks like collusion. Yep. 
and uh, it looks, uh, you know, it's not actually in turn the legal meaning, uh, the legal meaning of the term monopoly. It's not monopolistic, but it's it's a kind of de facto monopoly. It's a de facto. It's a de facto monopoly, and mm-hmm. the fact that you don't have any diversity about political leanings of these gigantic platforms and you know tech companies, you know the the, the idea that. Uh, you know, Apple and Twitter, because they uh, are traveling in the same political circles, can act in concert. Oh, Twitter's going to shove you off Twitter. Maybe you go to Parler and then Apple's going to shut down Parler, yeah. right? So the point is, yeah, it's functioning as a monopoly, mm-hmm. right? And if the law isn't caught up to it, then we need to fix the law. But that's not what's happening. What's happening is you've got the blue team, which is now in control of two of the three official branches of government. Right, it's in control of, or will be in control of the executive and both houses of Congress. Mm-hmm. The courts are still potentially independent, but this this reduces checks and balances. Well, and uh, it's an interesting use of the term independent. What you mean is, um, you know, sort of red team. I don't really mean red team. Okay. I just mean not. So, so inherent- you're not talking about the Supreme Court particularly. You're right. talking about the courts across the land. I There's mean- a diversity of uh, political leanings of the judges, uh, precisely because the judges, um, you know, as in SCOTUS, but specifically across the land, have been um, are appointees or uh, have been voted in um, by electorates across many, many years. Uh, so um, actually have diversity right. of politics. They potentially have independence. Okay. And um, I just, I'm, I'm curious, I'm not sure why you're using the word independent when you say there's Democrats here and then there's independents. Like it just seems like a strange because bifurcation that you're making. what I'm seeing is an unnatural uh, alignment on the blue team. It's mm-hmm. not, there's no natural diversity of opinion. It's not like Google is um, sympathetic with Democrats, but holds a strongly free speech position. And, you know, Twitter is, uh, much more interested in censorship. So, I mean, we, we just, you know, we, we want, we need checks and balances in the system. And you were arguing that it seems like the courts writ large still have enough diversity that they effectively can act as checks and balances, perhaps if, you know, if, if need be, as you go up, um, towards, towards the Supreme Court, but uh, that there is very little evidence for checks and balances at this point, as of you know the end of January, executive branch, legislative branch, big tech, academia, et cetera. Well, so this is, this is what I'm getting. Okay. I think the courts are an unknown. How effective the courts can be in uh, holding back the um, blue team's uh, power grab, which I think is what we are watching unfold in real time, uh, remains to be seen. But what I would point out is that this view that there are three branches of government, and that's where checks and balances come from, um, has only one of the branches potentially independent enough to exert a check. And what we have is effectively de facto new branches of government. Now, that's a very imprecise way of saying it, but we have um, things that exert power as if they were branches of government that are unanticipated in our founding documents. And so, um, you know, it's a little bit naive to think that, you know, the three branches of government and one of those branches retaining enough independence to exert a check is sufficient in a world where, in effect, what you have is executive, legislative, judicial, but then you also have the so-called fourth estate, the press, which is on the blue team, 
Um, you have academia, which is on the blue team. You mm-hmm. have the deep state, dare I say it, um, which appears to be on the blue team. And you have big tech, which appears to be on the blue team. Now, the- so just you know, you're you're going to get clipped, but um, you've been talking about deep state for well over a decade. Yep. And it was um, challenging and irritating at the point uh, that Trump showed up on the scene and started using that language, um, often imprecisely, as a, as a sort of a, a political cudgel um, r- rather than as a patriot. Uh, and you know we're well over an hour and a half at this point, I think, so we should really be wrapping it up. But do you, I, th- I feel like if you're going to use that phrase in the current environment, you should spend a minute or two saying what you mean by it. Um, what I'm saying is that there is some entity which is not accountable by virtue of the fact that it doesn't, it's, it's not transparent, so we can't see it, and it's not accountable, and it is, um, you know, it is the reason that we fight over. Um, you know things like uh, Snowden and mm-hmm. uh, and Assange and the uh, the things that they have alerted us to, um, but anyway, there's something which doesn't transition with uh, the shifts in belief structure. There's something that um, maintains a presence, administration after administration. And so, anyway, you know we can argue about the details of it, but I think it's it's hard to argue about the fact of it mm-hmm. and. In any case, um, it is a powerful force, and it's one that is not anticipated in the Constitution. The Constitution could not have understood the um, high-tech world of espionage and what would happen when you uh, empower these, um, you know, these uh, organizations to start, uh, you know, breaching and bending laws, you know, in the interests of the nation, what they ultimately end up doing. And, you know, we've seen all kinds of shenanigans, like the, um, you know, the five eyes mechanism for escaping the protections that U.S. citizens are supposed to have uh, from government surveillance, right? This was just a simple uh, uh, shell game, which was if the U.S. government is forbidden to spy on its own citizens, but it is allowed to spy on British citizens, and the British are not allowed to spy on their own citizens, but they can spy on American citizens, then there's an obvious trade, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, that evades the protection that was supposed to be there. And, you know, it exists. So anyway, I don't want to belabor the point. All I would say is the founding documents are not in a position to protect the values that they correctly highlighted. And the reason that they're not in a position to do it is because the world has changed radically. And so the fact of the judiciary maybe having the power to check uh, a, um, you know, the other two branches of government, which are now going to be in the hands of the same party, um, is reason for hope. But it has to be placed in the context of, yes, but there are these other forces that appear to be in the hands of the same party, and they exert a tremendous force in the other direction. And we're seeing that unfold online over the last 24 hours. Right. Yeah, obviously, the most you can ever hope for with regard to the division in a two-party system between three branches of government is two to one. Uh, But uh, your point is 
that so many of the other forces that are aligned in the world that are extra-governmental are, in fact, uh, in this, living in the same ideology, which is one that is claiming to be liberal, but that we recognize as an extremist branch um, that is also authoritarian. authoritarian. It's authoritarian. It's an authoritarian branch of the Democratic Party uh, that is ascending rapidly. It is ascending rapidly. Mm-hmm. And so I want to make a, a last point. Okay. Um, one of the things that is so troubling about the way the tech platforms work and the way it is interfacing with this um, this power grab and this uh, shoving large numbers of people out the door is that the way they shove you out the door obliterates what you did when you were there. And so it yeah. makes, A, the history impossible or nearly impossible to recover. That is to say, you know, initially Facebook, when you decided that it was too toxic and you left, it disappeared you from all the conversations that you had been in. It untagged you in every photograph that you had once been tagged in. And this was a disincentive for people to leave. But now this is turning into a mechanism for uh, allowing one side to shape the narrative falsely, right? So, um, It is difficult. I don't know what the president's sympathies are. I don't trust him, and I think he uh, did encourage um, the protest at the Capitol. In fact, it's clear that he encouraged it, and what he thought of those who broke in, I I can't say. Mm -hmm. But there is a question about whether or not he actually um, encouraged the breaking of the law. That is much harder to establish because he was clearly abiding by uh, at least a technical standard with respect to what he said. But having disappeared him from Twitter, what you get is the absence of the evidence that one would ordinarily want to go through in order to figure out if what Nancy Pelosi is saying that he said actually came out of his mouth at some point. Or So mm-hmm. my point is that the very fact of the tech platforms not only having the ability to prevent you from speaking going forward, but to effectively erase what you have said and therefore allows your detractors to imply that you have said things that you may or may not have actually said, that is a very dangerous process. And yeah, and it's one with which we should be well familiar from 20th century history, from Orwell's uh, dystopian vision of 20th century history, uh, and and more. Yeah, yes, the the airbrushing people uh, out of photographs um, is is not a legitimate process under any circumstances. Right. Um, can we finish by talking a little bit about fear and how to overcome it? And I feel like you've you have. You have spent a lot of time there, but um, Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a Buddhist monk uh, and has written several books, including this 2012 book called Fear, Essential Wisdom for Getting Through the Storm, um, is really an extraordinary, extraordinary man. And I was lucky enough to spend a couple of weeks with him back in high school, actually. Um, I had a, a creative writing teacher Uh, Peter Levitt, who was a poet and also a Buddhist, who invited me to this retreat at this school that the school where we met, actually, where we were friends at the time. Um, And it was otherwise filled. I was by far the youngest person there. Um, It was filled with beat poets and an occasional ceramicist and and painter and uh, and and me, this high school kid, aspiring writer at the time. 
uh, and Thich Nhat Hanh, who I had never heard of before, and he led us, this is at a retreat center in Ojai, California, he led us in three sitting and one walking meditations every day for uh, for two weeks. And uh, we slept in tents and did our, our art, our writing, and um, cooked together. And, you know, in some ways it was... I think it actually helped me form my idea for field trips later on when we would be, um, when both of us came to teach um, as professors at Evergreen. But just a very brief two-page excerpt from this book um, in a chapter called The Opposite of Fear. Two little sections. Deep listening and loving speech. When communication is cut off, we all suffer. When no one listens to us or understands us, we are like bombs ready to explode. Compassionate listening brings about healing. Sometimes only 10 minutes of listening deeply can transform us and bring a smile back to our lips. Many of us have lost our capacity for listening and using loving speech in our families. It may be that no one is capable of listening to anyone else, so we feel very lonely even within our own families. We go to a therapist hoping that she will be able to listen to us, but many therapists also have deep suffering within. Sometimes they cannot listen as deeply as they would like. So if we really love someone, we need to train ourselves to be deep listeners. We also need to train ourselves to use loving speech. We have lost our capacity to say things calmly. We get irritated too easily. Every time we open our mouths, our speech is sour or bitter. We have lost our capacity for speaking with kindness. Without this ability, we cannot succeed in restoring harmony, love, and happiness. In Buddhism, we speak of bodhisattvas, wise and compassionate beings who stay on earth to alleviate the suffering of others. The bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, also called Kuan Yin, has a great capacity for listening with compassion and true presence. Kuan Yin is the bodhisattva who can listen and understand the sounds of the world, the cries of suffering. You have to practice breathing mindfully in and out so that compassion always stays with you. You listen without giving advice or passing judgment. You can say to yourself about the other person, I am listening to him just because I want to relieve his suffering. This is called compassionate listening. You have to listen in such a way that compassion remains with you the whole time you are listening. That is the art. If halfway through listening, irritation or anger comes up, then you cannot listen deeply anymore. You have to practice in such a way that every time the energy of irritation and anger comes up, you can breathe in and out mindfully and continuing to hold compassion within you. No matter what the other person says, even if there is a lot of injustice in his way of seeing things, even if he condemns or blames you, you continue to sit very quietly, breathing in and out. If you are not in good shape, if you don't feel that you can go on listening in this way, let the other person know. Ask your friend, dear one, can we continue in a few days? I need to renew myself. I need to practice so that I can listen to you in the best way I can. Practice more walking meditation, more mindful breathing, and more sitting meditation to restore your capacity for compassionate listening. Walking with the Sangha. One wonderful thing to do with your community is walking meditation. When we are physically active together, moving, it is easy to feel supported by the collective energy. It is good to begin your practice of walking meditation with a group to get the support. You can ask a friend to go with you, or you can even take the hand of a child and walk with him or her. To practice mindful walking on your own, you can begin by making a contract with a staircase. You vow that you will always go up or down that staircase mindfully with very solid steps. If it happens that halfway up you realize that one of your steps didn't have your true presence in it, you go down and begin again. You can end up on that staircase a very long time. (laughs) If you can do it successfully with that staircase, then wherever you go, you'll be able to dwell in the present moment. 
You also can make a contract with a particular distance, perhaps from your work area to the restroom, and vow that when you walk that distance, every step will be solid and mindful. Otherwise, you will go back and do it again. It's a wonderful way to learn how to live every moment of your daily life deeply, resisting being carried away by your habit energy. Walk with your feet, not with your head. Bring your attention to your feet and walk. Walk in such a way that joy and real life are possible right here and now. When we do walking meditation as a group, we produce a collective energy of mindfulness and peace that nourishes us and helps heal us. So that's obviously in a language that we don't tend to use between us or or here on Dark Horse, but um, I think he is he is approaching through Buddhism what I in particular have approached, you know, having having learned from him when I was very young uh, through animal behavior, the act of of going outside, of being present in your body, of being understanding that you are a physical being uh, with instantiation in the real world and observing without interpretation as much as possible. Be in your body first. And this isn't something that you will be doing all the time and it will get in the way of analysis and interpretation and creativity to some degree, but especially when you're hot, when you're emotionally hot, as I think almost all of us are, at least sometimes now, given what is going on, being able to return back to self and physical reality and breathing and trying to just observe or hear or be in a place without interpretation is a way to reduce fear. Yes, I think it's it's excellent. And uh, tuning in, you know, Tuning into your environment and tuning into others who are tuned into their environment is, in some sense, uh, the antidote. And, you know, as is so often the case with Buddhism, you know, it takes a while to figure out why the approach is what it is and what the what the deeper point is. But once you see it, it's uh, it is a, it's universal. Um, and I guess uh, we're not getting to sea stars. We're going to have to do that next time. We're going to have to save sea stars for We're going to save sea stars. Okay, mm -hmm. so I guess I, uh, in light of your reading, I would like to say something to our audience that I said to my class the last time I met with them. Um, ever. Ever. Mm. Um, before uh, we were forced to leave Evergreen. I, we were in a public park, actually, Um uh, and what I said to them was pay very close attention to what is happening. I don't think we will pass this way again. And I think that's, that's where we are. Something utterly dramatic is afoot and how it comes out, we do not know, but it certainly makes sense to note everything because, um, this is history happening. That's right. That's right. Uh, so I think we will forego most of the announcements that we would normally make, um, but we'll say that good conversations happen on the Discord server, which you can find at either of our Patreons, and that after a 15-minute break, for those who are watching rather than uh, just listening, we'll be back to answer your questions in the second hour. All right. Be well, everyone. We'll see you shortly. <laughs>